0: 17, Acts 17, verses 1 to 15, 1 to 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men from the rebel, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with Be not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. May God help us to hear his word.
1: Before Ollie comes to deliver God's word to us, I would like to take a moment and celebrate a church that loves its pastors. I have served for uh, 35 years and have never been a part of a church that has given a period of time for pastors to rest and refresh, but you are that church. This will be the last opportunity for us to hear Pastor Ollie for about six or seven months as he will be going to take his sabbatical provided by a church that loves its pastors. I celebrate your goodness to those who serve him. And I'd like Ollie, if you would come and join me here, because I'd like for us, before he preaches God's word, to pray for this brother. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this uh, Brother Ollie, this man not only whom you have called, but who had the courage to say yes. I thank you for the many months that he would Skype me and invite me to consider to come back to this kind of church. I thank you for his passions, for the hours he spends preparing to preach your word and to teach your word. And we ask on his behalf, in fact, On behalf of all of us, will you not allow him these next few months to lay all of his affairs into your care? Not just his ministry affairs, but all of his affairs. Help him to entrust you with those. In these six or seven months that follow, help him to to rediscover you as guide and as refuge. Restore joy, O God. Diminish anxiety. Refresh his spirit. Allow him space to dwell on the pleasant things you have given him in his life. And Father, as he focuses on study and personal retreat, I pray that you would anoint him with strength tomorrow and always. Mm. And now, Father God, we invite you to allow your glory to rise among us. Prepare our hearts to hear your word. Mm. May your Mm precious presence reign in our lives in this moment and God may you find in us a people who are ready to turn again to you equip our hearts with obedient responses and we pray this in Jesus name Amen. amen amen thank you
2: Thank you, Ajit, for reading God's Word for us. And thank you, Ian, for your kind words and prayer. Though I will miss the spending time with the staff and with GBC, uh, but yes, I'm looking forward to a time of rest and refreshing in Jesus Christ. And I hope to come back uh, rested and ready to serve you once again. And I'll try very hard not to feel the added pressure in my preaching today. No pressure, right, Ian? <laughs> well, my friends, let me ask you this. Have you left a worship service feeling that the message preached really spoke to you? You thought that the word faithfully preached was relevant to you right now. It almost feels as if God was speaking to you in the very situation you find yourself struggling in. Or you felt that the preacher really communicated God's word to you, with you, It felt as if He was sitting down right there with you, talking and sharing the words of life directly with you. And then, there's always and then, right? You meet a friend and his response was 180 degrees different from yours. He felt that the preaching was poor and that God did not speak to him. He critiques the message and complains. Have you counted this before? Doesn't it make you wonder how one message can give rise to two very different responses? And I'm not making excuses for the preacher right here. Okay? Almost all preachers I know leave the pupit feeling that they could have done better. i felt this many, many times. And yes, I admit many times we and I could have done better. But back to the point I'm making here with all things being equal. Why is it that one message can give rise to two very different responses? And can I offer a reason? Perhaps it's due to the heart-soul of the one receiving the seed of the word. Our hearts, our inner motivations will affect the way we see things, will affect the way we perceive things and therefore impact the way we receive the Word. So, my friends, the question for us today is, how then should we receive God's Word? And this is an important word for us to hear today. For how we receive God's Word is a matter of life and death, as we shall see in today's passage. So, let us look at Acts 17, 17, verses 1 to 15. But before we address the question, How should we receive God's Word? Let us again express our dependence on God as we go before Him in a short prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in Your presence this day. May Your Word be our rule and authority, Your Spirit our teacher and guide, and Your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Before we jump right into today's passage, Let's catch up on what Paul and the rest of the missionary team has been doing so far. Recall Acts 13 and 14. Barnabas and Paul, led by the Holy Spirit and sent by the church at Antioch, Syria, left for their first missionary journey. Do you remember that? And where did they visit? They visited Cyprus and they worked their way through Galatia or modern-day Turkey. They proclaimed the gospel first in the synagogues to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And what happened? We see the gospel bearing much fruit. Many Jews and Gentiles believe, and they face opposition. Then in Acts 15, the missionary team went to Jerusalem to meet with the council that comprised the apostles and elders of the church at Jerusalem. There, the council affirmed that one, is saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that the gospel is both for the Jew and the Gentiles. And of course, the missionary team, Paul and the missionary team, energized and delighted by this decision, they left for the second missionary journey. They wanted to take the gospel to the rest of Asia. But what happened? Led by the Holy Spirit, they went west instead into Europe. And the first city they reached in Europe was Philippi, where the preaching of the gospel brought both acceptance and rejection. And this pattern is repeated again and again in Paul's five city missionary journey. The faithful preaching of the gospel brings about two different heart responses rejection and acceptance in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Athens and Corinth. And the rejection of the gospel leads to opposition and in some cases, violence. Can you imagine how it would be if you're part of Paul's team? I mean, if if I were there, I would probably be tempted to say to Paul, "Um, you know, Brother Paul, you know, I know you're using different methods to share the one same message of the gospel. But perhaps it's not the method, perhaps it's the message. Perhaps you can also tone down the message as well. You know the part about people being sinners and facing God's judgment? It doesn't really sit well with a lot of people. Perhaps you can be more sensitive and adjust the message a little. Let us not get people too upset. And after all, we all know insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? Thank God, I'm not on a team, right? Because what do we see Paul doing? However, what did Paul do? He went on with the madness of preaching the one message of the gospel in all the cities. Why? Why could this be so? Perhaps Paul had heard from other disciples about Jesus' parable of the sower recorded for us in Matthew 13, Mark 4 and Luke 8. He understands that he cannot control the conditions of the heart-soul of the human heart, but he is called to faithfully sow the seed of the gospel far and wide. Or perhaps Paul has heard and seen the examples of other apostles in Jerusalem as they preach the one message of the gospel faithfully, despite the opposition they face. Or even more likely, is that Paul trusts that the Holy Spirit will empower his weakness even as he faithfully testified to the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. But I believe what drives Paul is this. Paul writes for us in Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is because the gospel is good news, is the power of God for salvation and life to everyone who by faith believes. Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death on and death on the cross for our sins, his being raised to life by God for our life is good news of this. Paul is not ashamed. And to adjust and tone down the message is to diminish God's power to save. Hear this it diminishes God's power to save. And ultimately, it brings death rather than life. So Paul faithfully preaches the gospel, even though it brings apart two different heart responses in his hearers. And, and for today, the two cities that show most clearly the two different heart responses best is Thessalonica and Berea. And this is why I believe the author Luke, the writer of Acts, places these two accounts side by side, kind of like a parallel contrast, showing the different heart responses. But the question for us, my Christian friend, is this. Have we been tempted to tone down the message of the gospel, especially when we face opposition? You know, there's nothing much, maybe to tweak it a little here or there to make the message less offensive to others in our neighbourhoods, in our families, schools or even in our workplaces. But my friends, let it not be so. Of course, I'm not asking us to be, to, to, to be offensive. We want to be sensitive and not be offence in our behaviour and in our method of communication because the gospel itself is offence enough. But let us be like Paul, be insane and faithfully communicate the one message of the gospel without adjusting the content. For the gospel, unadjusted, is life and more life to those who believe. Let us first look at verses 1 to 9, where we see among the Thessalonians, example, an example of how not to respond to the gospel. And when I was in my university days, I'm dating myself here, it's about... 25 years back, okay, um, I taught tuition for free for more than a year to some upper primary students at the Tiong Family Service Center. And these students were labeled as weak students academically, and they presented a challenge as they frequently misbehaved and not done their work. One of the girls, out of the two girls and a boy, I taught as a group, often came with no work done, nothing at all, weak after a week. Okay? And most people, including some of the staff at the Family Service Centre, will just label her as lazy and scold her as a form of motivation. Right? Scolding is Singapore's motivation for doing better, right? So they did that. Okay? And I asked her why she was not doing her work. You know, she initially responded and said, oh, I'm lazy, law. I'm just lazy. But with some time and trust, she finally honestly replied, I've already failed and I expect to continue to fail. I'm in a normal stream unlike the rest of my relatives and friends. And no matter how hard I work now, I'll probably end up in ITE. And you know right, ITE means it's the end. No hope now. How to face my friends and relatives. And this was before the education changes which make it more possible for students who are late bloomers or did better later to transfer to other courses and stream. For the girl, you see, the presenting symptom appeared to be laziness. But what was a heart issue? At her heart, she struggled with despair. A despair that comes from lacking what she desires most. She desires the approval of others, of her peers. She expects to fail, not because she's lazy, but because she has given herself to despair, because she cannot have what she desires, the approval of others. And my point here is this. As as we look at the Thessalonians, let us observe what is their heart issue that causes them to reject the gospel. So Acts 17 verses 1 to 9. Very quickly, we see Paul and his missionary team, they coming to Thessalonica after their time in Philippi. There they found a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as it was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from Scripture. We see this from verses 2 to 3, okay? Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Christ whom I proclaim to you is, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul went in first to the Jews with the gospel. This is part of his usual pattern of ministry. And what did he do next? It's only one verse, one sentence, but it's, it's clear what he did. He proclaimed the gospel. And we see that firstly, the basis of all Paul had to say was what? His personal experience? No. was the authority of Scripture, the Old Testament. The Bible alone is the sole ground of authority for all matters and faith. Basically, my friends, what Scripture says is what God says. Secondly, Paul reasoned, explained, and proved and proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul showed that the Old Testament teaches that it was necessary, necessary, for Jesus both to die and to rise again and ascend to His Father in heaven. For Paul The death of Jesus would have meant nothing but a tragedy had Jesus not been raised from the dead. Without the resurrection, there'll be no victory over death and the grave. Without the resurrection, there'll be no means of knowing for sure if Jesus was who he said he was. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't know what Jesus did on the cross was susceptible to God. Without the resurrection, anything else, we without anything else that Jesus said was actually true. The resurrection spelled out the fact that Jesus Christ is alive, truly and physically alive from the dead. Thirdly, Paul proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, the Anointed One. And what he does here is this. He identifies the Jesus of history. A man from Nazareth, a physical man from Nazareth some 2,000 years ago, a man in time and space with the Christ, the Messiah of Scripture. What Paul did in Thessalonica is the same as what he and Peter had done elsewhere in Acts, saying, this Jesus is the Christ. He is our Messiah. He showed that the Old Testament promise of a coming Messiah was fulfilled in the historical Jesus of Nazareth. The one whom the Jews has been expecting had come to rescue and provide salvation. It is this same Jesus that has come to rescue and provide salvation for us. Note the response. How did the Thessalonians respond to the gospel? Some of the Jews believe, as well as many of the God-fearing Greeks and several leading women. And what happens next in verses 5 to 9? The non-believing Jews recruited some wicked men. Note that, religious Jews, what did they do? They went around recruiting uh, okay, wicked men. They formed a mob and caused a riot. And not being able to find Paul and Silas and the rest of the missionary team, they dragged Jason, whose house Paul and the team had been staying at, before the authorities. They accused Paul and his team of turning the world upside down. They claim that Paul and his team are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, King Jesus. Basically, the Jews accuse Paul of treason. And the city authorities, after taking the money as security from Jason's arrest, they let them go on assurance that they will not cause further disturbance, lest their security bond be forfeited. What do we see here? The presenting symptoms of the Jews was the accusation that Paul and his team was going against the law and committing treason. But what was their hard motives? It's in verse 5 which I left out. What were their motives? They were? They were? Verse 5. They were jealous. They were jealous. They were jealous that Paul and the missionary team they were growing in influence. So the unbelieving Jews were seeking power. They were jealous that Paul and the team were getting financial backing of the leading women. They were seeking money. My friends, they did not respond to the gospel because the soul of their hearts were littered with the twin idols of power and materialism. And because they valued these idols rather than the gospel, they rejected the gospel. So how do you not respond well to the gospel? You let your heart be captured and motivated by idols and in doing so, you reject the Word of God from doing its work in you. The late John Stott writes, we must allow the Word of God to confront us to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behaviour. My friends, we need to let the Word of God confront and uproot the idols in our hearts. Next slide, please. Some of us Christians, I know, may be saying, I know, I know, Ollie, God's Word is true. But many of the things said in the Bible are easy to say but hard to do. i've heard this before many times and you don't understand the situation i'm in i mean there's a struggle in the situation i'm in my friends might suggest that you're not responding to the words is because you're letting other things rule over your hearts we may say i know i need to speak the love in truth to my friend in my cg who is sinning but never mind it's so difficult it's so awkward and in this case, are we letting our need for comfort, we avoid the potential for conflict for our comfort's sake, to triumph over the Scripture's call to show love and speak the truth to our friend in, to help him fight sin. Or maybe we feel a constant need to know what's happening in church. Uh, we need, have a constant need to, to know what's happening in everyone's life in the church and in doing so, we indulge in every bit and morsel of gossip it be that in this case, we are letting our need for power, the feeling that we have information and are in the know, triumph over what the Bible tells us about guarding our lips against gossip. And to my non-Christian friends, why is it that you find it hard to accept and receive the gospel? What is it that is motivating you? Perhaps you say that you think Christianity is a superstitious religion rooted not in science, but I appeal to you to honestly examine your motives. Perhaps the real reason you know, the real reason is because if you know if Christ's claims are true, then you will literally turn your world upside down. It means that you seek control of your life to Christ our Saviour King. What's wrong with this, my friends? If Christ's claims are true, and the Apostle Paul argues for this, it means we let Christ, our loving God and Saviour King, the one in whom all creation was created and now rules over all things, who suffered and died on the cross for the forgiveness of yours and my sins and raised to life so that you and I too might experience joyful, abundant life. It means letting this Jesus and His Word have His rule in our hearts and our lives. And What is wrong with this? I appeal to you, my non-Christian friends, give this some thought. How then are we to respond to the Gospel? How then are we to respond to the Gospel? Turn with me to verses 10 to 15. Here we see the church immediately sending Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica to Berea. And Paul does the same things again. You would think that Paul would learn after making, uh, the same th- uh, doing the same thing and facing opposition time and again, but Paul does the same thing again. He went into the synagogue and preached Jesus Christ. And how did the Jews in Berea receive the gospel? Let's have a look. It's an entire study in contrast with the Jews in Thessalonica. We read in verse 11, Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were called noble. But they were not noble in birth. But they were noble and praiseworthy in their attitude. Because what did they do? They received the gospel with all eagerness. Can you imagine that? Eager, ready to take it in ready to receive it. And then they diligently examined and searched the Scripture. They checked out what Paul said against Scripture. And they wanted to chop, stem, and double confirm what Paul had said is true. God's Word remains true. And because it's true truth, is authoritative. It rules in spite of human rejection. As a result, what do we see? Many of the Jews as well as The Greek women of high standing and Greek men believe in the message of the gospel. Luke's account of the Berean tells us we should receive God's word with eagerness, with diligence and belief. However, opposition was not long in coming. The Jews hearing that Paul was proclaiming the word of God in Berea arrived to stir up trouble and this resulted in the church having to send Paul off to Athens my non-Christian friends here, it's, it's not exciting uh, that you're here this, this morning. I urge you to give the Gospel a fair hearing. Be like the Bereans. Search the Bible for yourself and allow the Bible to speak for itself. Examine Christ's claims for yourself. And if this is a desire, you can contact any of the DS team, EKEd, or or Matthew, David, or even Eugene, they are designing a seeker's class for friends who are exploring Christianity. Or if you want to, you can also contact any of the YA leaders. They have an excellent resource, the Gospel Primer, that will help you look through the Bible and understand what the Gospel is about. Or you can approach any of the elders and pastors. We will be delighted to sit down with you, to do a Bible study with you, to explore Christ's claims together with you. Do not wait. If this is your desire, act now. And after the service, you can come and look for any of us. Now, as a single man in Christian ministry, I've sought to find role models and examples of single pastors and, and pastor theologians that I can learn win, learn from. And as God has providentially provided, I've come across three English pastors theologians, Richard Sips, Charles Simeon, and this guy, John Stott. Each remained single and faithfully served the local church their entire life. They made Jesus Christ and His gospel their all. Richard sips lived in the 16th to 17th century. Charles Simon lived in the 18th to 19th century. And John Stott lived in the 20th to 21st century. And he passed into glory in 2011. In fact, the prayer I usually pray to prepare my hearts, our hearts for, service, for preaching, is adapted from John Stott's prayer, which he often prayed at the start of his preaching. Because John Stott's concern is that God's Word rule over those who heard God's Word. And he writes elsewhere, our claim is that God has revealed Himself by speaking, that this divine or god brief speech has been written down and preserved in Scripture, and that Scripture, the Bible, is in fact God's Word written, which therefore is true and reliable and has divine authority over men. My friends, do we believe that God's Word is true and reliable and has divine authority over us? Will we let God's Word rule our hearts and our lives? If this is our desire, then we should receive God's Word with eagerness with diligence and with belief. And how can we better do this? How can we better do this? To help us along, I recommend this short article to you, Seven Ways to Become a Better Sermon Listener by Christopher Ash. And details to the link on, to the article is on, on the website is included in your ministry guide. So how to listen to a sermon, you think? Huh? Just listen, Lord. just like watching TV, right? You just sit there and watch TV. You just sit there and listen to your sermon. But sermon listening is not a passive activity. Jesus Himself urges us after His parable of the sower, consider carefully how you listen. Luke 8.18 So let's consider carefully how we listen. And Christopher Ash gives us seven great pointers. Firstly, firstly, expect God to speak. Although a human preacher is speaking, but if he's opening up the Bible, then we are actually listening to the authoritative voice of God, the very voice of God, 1 Peter 4.11. So pray during the week for next Sunday's preacher. Pray for yourself and those who go to church with you. Come to church expecting God to speak. And you prepare yourself by sleeping early on Saturday evening and resting well the night before. Don't binge watch Netflix. You can watch it on Sunday evening. Okay? Saturday evening, rest early so that you can come rested and prepared and eager eager to hear God speak. Second point, admit that God knows better than you do. By our sinful human nature, we want the sermon, the message, to make us feel better about ourselves. Of course, we want our self-esteem to be boosted. We want to reinforce our pre-existing prejudices. But my friends, when God speaks, He calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ. God is God, and I am not. So we need to sit under His Word and be prepared to change our opinions, our beliefs, our heart, and our life. The third point, make sure what the preacher says is what the passage says. You know, the authority of the pastor and teacher doesn't come from his office. It is an entirely delegated authority. And this is also partially why your EC pastors, all of us ask you to call us by our first name because we recognize we have no authority outside of the Word of God. So when you call us by our first name, you call me Ollie, it reminds us that as long as I, only when I speak the Word of God and open up the Word of God, then the words that I speak has authority because it's not my words, but God's words. So when a preacher says what the Scripture says, he speaks with authority. When he does not do so, he has no authority. So be humble, but not gullible. Read the passage before the sermon. I mean, how many of us actually does that? We put in the ministry guide the passage for uh, for next week's sermon. So read the passage before the sermon. Diligently check what the preacher says against Scripture. The fourth point, hear the sermon in church. Hear the sermon in church. You know, today... It's easy to access and download great preachers on MP3 Audios. Anytime you can listen to Tim Keller, John Piper, whoever. And it's tempting to listen the sermons on your own at your convenience at home, or in my case, in a coffee cafe somewhere. But listening to the sermon is not a me and God thing. It is a God-shaping-us-together thing. We listen together. We hold one another accountable and we apply God's Word in community as we do the one another of Scripture, as we love one another, encourage one another, speak the truth to one another. The fifth point, be there week by week. God doesn't give us quick fixes from hearing one or two Sunday sermons. He shapes, He molds our minds and hearts and character over time by the steady drip, drip, drip of His Word. We need to hear Christ proclaim again and again. Like good coffee, the truth of God's Word need to percolate in our hearts and in our minds before bringing forth the good brew of good fruit in our life. Six, do what the Bible says. Do not merely listen to the Word James tells us and so deceive yourself, the apostle writes. Do what it says, James 1.22. The purpose of the sermon is not for us to accumulate knowledge, to make us know it all, but to make us more like Jesus. We are to be those who hear the Word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a God, a crop of godly character. Luke 8.15 We don't come to the preaching of God's Word to be entertained or to have our brain cells tickled by intellectual displays or to have our emotions swayed by impressive communicators. Rather, we come to hear, we come to worship, we come to obey. And after the Sunday sermon, think about some concrete way in which you obey the preached word today. Write it down. And if you're brave enough, tell someone about it. And if you're even braver, tell your spouse about it. It might be something to start doing or stop doing. It may be words to speak or to stop speaking. Most of all, it will be an attitude or desire of heart that needs transforming. It may be helpful to keep a notebook and we should actively take notes during the sermon Sunday by Sunday. Return to past entries from time to time to review your progress. Ask yourself how God is at work in you through His Word. You may be surprised and encouraged. Finally, do what the Bible says today and rejoice. Christopher Ash closes with this And then rejoice. Be glad God caused the Bible to be written exactly as He wanted. Be glad for the good news of all He has given us in Christ. If you are a believer, be glad that your name is written in heaven. Let each time you sit with your covenant family in Christ, listening to a sermon, be a sign of fresh repentance, fresh reliance and fresh obedience to your King. I'll be taking some time off for sabbatical soon and I'll be working on a number of things, including losing some weight. So perhaps when I come back in six, months' time, I can tell you that I come back as a lesser man. Okay? But you know, you know what will be great? Is when I return. I return. And I find that GBC will have grown in better receiving God's Word with all eagerness, diligence, and belief. That as a church, there is more joy as we have grown in gladness and gratitude for the gospel of Jesus Christ. that As a church, we are increasingly marked by a joyful obedience to Christ, our King and Saviour. That as GBC, we will let God's Word rule in our hearts and lives for our good and for God's glory. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for the Gospel and Your Word of life. Lord, we confess that many times, rather than acknowledging Your Word is true and letting it rule in our lives, we we reject it or defer obedience to it. We rather let our heart idols rule instead. We want to be our own King rather than let You and Your Words be King in our lives. Father, forgive us our sins. We thank You that in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins, and that your promised Holy Spirit will continue to change and transform us. Help us to change. Help us to delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to let your word, word rule in our hearts and lives and to joyfully obey you. And Lord, as we now come before you to remember the Lord's Supper, as Jesus so commanded us to do, remind us afresh of the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news of Jesus Christ, that He was crucified and died on a cross for our sins, that He was raised to life for God, by God for our life. In the name of the eternal Word of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this point here, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper and we will celebrate and receive the Lord's Supper. Will the stewards please come forward at this point? The Lord's Supper gives us a picture of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, reminds us of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, resurrection and His coming back again. It tells us of the good news of God's forgiveness available to us in Jesus Christ. We invite baptised believers to join us in the Lord's Supper. Scripture records for us on the night before His death, our Lord Jesus Christ gathered with His disciples in His upper room to eat the Passover meal. Jesus took the Passover meal and transformed it into a meal with new meaning when He instructed His disciples to drink of the cup and eat of the bread in remembrance of His death on their behalf. Matthew 26, verse 26 records Jesus' words for us. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then He broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And He took a cup of wine and gave thanks for it. And He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and His people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I invite Ian to give thanks for the bread.